the, the bigger question really is the impact of social media. And I think it has a tremendously positive impact in the decentralization of information distribution. You now can get something resembling the truth from a million different sources. The downside of that is, boy, you've got to be able to think critically about the information you're receiving, analyze this information. Welcome to Humanizing Software, where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives. Hear incredible stories and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to Tailwind Business Ventures on Humanizing Software, where we have the opportunity to interview, fireside chat, and talk with a number of business, IT, and global leaders on this concept of humanizing software, where we take this ever-present concept known as the zeros and ones. We invite you to follow us on our website at tailwindsw.com. Please ask questions inquire, think about those areas that you'd like to cover. Today, I'm exceptionally excited and pleased to have somebody join us. That is somebody that not only do I respect on a number of different fronts, both business and professional wise, but have had the opportunity to know for almost 15 years. Uh, Joe Gleinsner is joining us today and is a seasoned technology executive with more than 20 years of experience in growing technology product and service organizations specifically around the enterprise data center, cloud, and various different types of security technologies. He is currently the chief executive officer at TrustGrid, an edge computing platform that enables application providers to deploy in and connect with various customer environments, something we'll be talking about today. He has previously been the chief executive officer at GCS Technologies and is currently chairman of the board at the same. Please join me in welcoming Joe to the conversation. Joe, good morning. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I am very well, and thanks so much for joining us today. It's not like we get a chance to talk now on an ever more increasing basis, which I've thoroughly enjoyed over the course of the last few weeks and months. So, Joe, we start off every one of these in a very, very simple mechanism. We've got a number of folks that will be listening in in the future because, as you and I both know, digital is most certainly forever. Would love for you to share the Joe Gleisner story. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yeah, I was born uh, about 20 miles uh, from where I sit today in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, a South Texas kid through and through, joining you today from Goliad, Texas, my ranch down here, but uh, I moved around quite a bit as a child. My father was a spec home builder, which is like an oil wildcatter. You build houses for the hell of it and you hope they sell. And so perhaps even a, a topical uh, or timely comment, uh, 19, mid-1980s, we were in San Antonio, Texas. My father had built several spec homes. Savings and loan scandal explodes, and you can't get a mortgage in Texas for several months. And he ate all those houses, went bankrupt spectacularly, and took the family out to California, where I spent several years in Southern California near San Diego. I came back to Austin for high school and college, went to Westwood High School up in North Austin, and eventually into UT Technology has been an emphasis uh, my whole life. My father did not want me following his footsteps. He insisted that we learn how to program. And so 
I'm at the very end of Gen X or the beginning of Gen Y. So I'm probably the first generation to really grow up with a PC. I recall getting that 8086 from Epson with the monochrome green monitor and learning GW Basic and Q Basic. Boy, before I was about nine or 10 years old, I could program basic games. My science fair contribution every year was always a program that no one ever believed that I wrote, even though it was pretty basic. Back then, the idea of programming was was akin to magic. So I had a really technical upbringing, but also a lot of outside time. We had a really great balance. We had long gone days of the 90s and 80s of riding bikes around neighborhoods and playing outside and getting all the uh, exercise and energy out, but then also a good mix of, of screen time. We didn't call it that then, but getting the foundations of a technical career built. I went to Westwood High School, and that was uh, the most fortunate aspects of my education. Westwood at the time had four years of computer science available. Uh, which is pretty um, uncommon back then, especially. Also ends up being one of the top high schools in the country after they got rid of me. But uh, I had Turbo Pascal. I had C++. Uh, so much so that when I um, quit high school early, left, dropped out and challenged my last courses, got into UT. And the first class I walked in at UT was half full of Westwood guys uh, for computer engineering. So it was a, a great time to learn the industry, to be around it, and, uh, and to grow through it. Didn't last long at UT either. Well, I officially paid for a semester. Uh, makes me a card-carrying longhorn, but that was the extent of my formal education. I never really jived well with people teaching me directly, but I've been a lifelong learner. So when the freshman career fair came up and I was talking to the IBM guys, I remember, at UT, they asked me, and what my interests were, and I was able to share some of the knowledge I'd gained from from being technical for so long, for building PCs, for working with modems and hosting BBSs and, and going through all that stuff all through high school. The first internet text-based systems came out when we were in high school, and, and they said, you know, you know enough right now that you could get a job with us tomorrow and you could skip this whole school process. And so I did. Went right into work at IT and was a contractor, did the uh, obligatory Dell service, which everybody in Austin has to go through at some point in time, I think. Wound up at GTE Internetworking, a company that no longer exists, but a man with your amount of hair probably knows that company well. They hired me to run a large network operations center that outsourced thousands and thousands of managed devices and really taught me a lot about services, consulting, uh, less technical right up into the dot-com bust when you could not buy a job in Austin, Texas, an IT job especially. And so I started doing uh, some consulting on the side just to pay my bills. I ended up having to live in a house with my brother and one other buddy to afford life at that point in time. The high-flying days were over, but uh, the opportunity started really there professionally for me. We, I founded GCS Technologies with my brother a few years later, and the rest is history there. It's burned a, a lifelong interest in business and technology. And that's really where, where we get to today. I'm married to my lovely bride, Tisa Miller, physician here in Austin area. And I have three children. Gwen is 16, off in driving, is enjoying Honolulu on a band trip right now while we're all in Texas. She's a member of the Lander Marching Band. And my other two children, Thomas is 10 and Bertie is eight. So that takes us up to, uh, to current day. Lots and lots to dive into, and I fully respect and engage on the hair comment. So I find it interesting how many times that we talk about hair. We talk about either Commodore 64, TRS-80, the Apple IIc, or any previous models that, that really literally pigeonhole us into a conversation of, 
oh, you're one of those old guys. But the fact that you are actually taking programs that you wrote in basic to a science fair, big question, were you winning? No, no, Uh, they they didn't believe me. They thought my father (laughs) did it or somebody helped me. And I was absolutely irate each time. They couldn't understand that I could do this. And and it wasn't like this was... 3D or you know text based testing is what I used to do to to try to impress them. It, you know, you take your your science test on the computer and it would score it, and it was the basic test. So this is nothing. A lot of if thens, maybe some case, but that was it. So essentially, no metaverse or augmented reality or anything back in high school. That my, was my graphic, uh, my graphic skills are as poor now as they were then. Yeah. Understood. Understood. No, it's it's interesting because. The and, and it speaks to a conversation thread I'm going to tug on a little bit about educational systems at all different levels and them leveraging technology, because I think there's that constant pull behind how do you have uh, systemic consistency at different age levels and grade levels? And then how do you keep up with different ways and means with which that people are actually learning? And we're going to come to that, but I first wanted to touch base on a separate area. It sounded like your family had a huge impact on your life. And I know in particular how important family is in your life. Before we dive a little bit deeper on, on the, the, the first topic I mentioned, I, I really want to discuss a little bit more because I know how important family is. Let's talk about how your dad, and he said, nope, you're not going to become a spec home builder, learn how to code. But also I know that that's prevalent throughout your entire family with this sense of learning and the sense of trying out and experiencing new things. Let's talk a little bit about that, Joe. Yeah, you know, I'm very blessed to have been born where I was born, to the people I was born to. Both my parents have been huge influences on my life in very different ways. My, my father, you know, is just an entrepreneur through and through. And, and far more, as he admitted to me last night, they own the place next door. And so we share dinner uh, while we're down here in Goliad. He's not a salesperson, never was, and, and was proud that I was able to pick up some of those skills and, and excel where he could not. He is a, a tradesman, a craftsman. He's a builder. He can build homes and they sell sometimes too. My, my mother is a very different role model for me. Uh, she didn't go. She quit college when uh, she became pregnant with me. Uh, didn't go back until we were in elementary school. So we really had a front row seat. I remember tagging along with her to uh, San Diego State University, going to her calculus classes and trying to understand that math. Uh, it was an interesting experience, kind of getting front row seat to college at a, as a young age and then uh, watching her graduate and go into a career biotechnology. She has been an executive at a, a large uh, FDA compliance consulting organization for 20-ish years, but I've watched her career take off a far different perspective than what my father has, who has typically tried to avoid hiring full-time employees at any cost, uh, likes being the sole proprietor, and wants to make sure he gets his 11.45, 30-minute nap every single day as well. Uh, so yeah, both professionally, it has been a huge influence on my life. I've had great resources I can call on. When I first started GCS, the marketing method we picked was uh, direct mail. And it was because I had helped my father on weekends for years and years, direct mail for his business. So after the spec homes had matured to a certain point, he took on a design element as well, a CAD design early on and uh, programmed in Lisp as well. And so we would help with that uh, and generate business for the design side of that business. So that that was huge. In fact, GCS Today still has in their top 10 customers a few that came from the direct mail business and a few that affected my longtime mentor and business partner, Guy Goodwin, 
answered a direct mail piece early on and uh, forged that relationship. But yeah, family is huge for me and it's been a, a great influence. I, I've co-founded GCS with my brother and uh, still today remain close uh, close with him, even though he exited a few years ago. Excellent. I know that that's, that's an important piece. And I know that you and I share the fact that our parents have been extremely influential in our lives. And I've got the quintessential best older brother that uh, one could ask for. And my brother, Jeff, who 13 months older, but was always that straight arrow of whenever I, uh, I'm, I'm the one who was always taking the risks. I was the one who was like, sure, you know what, let's go that direction into the dark and go over the cliff because yeah, who knows how big of a fall might it be, you know, roll, get back up and move on. And that's done well for me most of the time. Um, it's it's interesting where you had mentioned during the dot, dot com boom or bust rather in 99, 2000. Um, I had the, in addition to a number of other areas, the magical timing of literally leaving an outstanding career with Johnson & Johnson in December of 99 to start working with an internet startup in Seattle in January of 2000 because I'm a master of timing. And it's interesting because we did exactly what a lot of folks did at that time, which was, and we're going to talk about this today too, especially with Silicon Valley Bank, which I know you and I've been discussing over the weekend, and the impact of a number of different software components of that from a communication, from an impact and another piece. But back in 2000, everybody was, you know, dogs were talking about where you can buy pet food. You were getting a home grocer to deliver groceries to your house. There's a whole bunch of stuff that people were pulling. Uh, sending trillions, billions and billions of dollars into these trying type companies who were trying out new different business models. And inevitably it started and it launched a whole bunch of stuff, but then rapidly collapsed. So nine, 10 months into my extra career in this internet software company, literally in the year 2000 and 90 days in going without a paycheck, new dad, fairly newly married, just bought a house, left the bluest of blue chips and then that fifth one is a, what the hell were you thinking type thing? And yet looking back 23 years from now or 23 years ago, one of the best things that ever happened to me because I had to learn to not only deal with adversity, but it didn't push me away from technology. It drew me back into technology because I knew the potential was there and it's going to continue to iterate and change and the power behind the way that we put these zeros and ones together and the impact that they have on humanity is going to continue to be huge. So it's fascinating. And, and you, uh, I love your, everybody had to have their attempt at Dell if you're an Austin type thing and couldn't buy a job in 2000. You've seen it, been there, done that. I've seen it, been there, done that. And you and I both have been blessed with careers that have taken us to a number of different, um, not only people, but processes and capabilities that I think has dramatically impacted our lives. So I want to come back and start on the education side. Education in 2023 versus education when, let's call it 25 years ago, when you and I were either getting out of or coming into high school or getting into college. What are some of the major factors as it pertains to technology differences between when we were in high school or college versus our kids who are either getting into high school or in college? Yeah. And it's interesting as a parent now watching my children go through those same steps. Um, you know, we were always told, as I'm sure you were, you'll never have a calculator in your pocket all the time. Right? That, that didn't work out quite like like Ms. Smith was uh, suggesting there. You know, I think it's access to information, right? I think it's access to alternative forms of education. It's 
far more able to have the educational experience that is right for an individualized student. And you said, you know, trying try to balance the needs of a standardized level of education across a, a grade level uh, with individual needs and desires. I, I never fit into the classic, you know, the, the advanced classes always had me running real fast to even catch up. And the regular classes, I felt like I was bored out of my mind. And for, for me, what, what worked was a, I'd say a fairly unique level of schooling. I, I had access to some technology and certainly that grew substantially, but it, it really was about uh, finding the information on my own pace and processing it and learning and applying it. And I do that best when there's a financial incentive is what I learned as well. The, for me is the, the necessary learning for learning's sake. I'm a big history buff uh, that's come on you know, later in life. Probably 99% of what I read these days is, is history. But you know, for me, early on, especially where I could chase a dollar, where I could chase financial or professional success is where I applied myself the best. My wife is very different. My wife, as a physician, is, has followed a very prescribed path to get to the career path and um, certainly some different mental capabilities that I completely lack. Her ability to study far outpaces anything that I've ever achieved. And so when, when I look at my children, what I'm trying to find is the right technology the, the tools that advance them along the path that, that I think, quite frankly, they're more or less born to. My, I see my youngest daughter learns a lot like her mother does and benefits for some structure and some, some routine around the educational process. And, and my son is similar to me, hard to sit still for five minutes, wants to get up, wants to be hands-on, wants to be learning and moving in a direction and, and doesn't necessarily have the patience to sit down and apply himself to more of the finer points of the education system. And we've been fortunate to find tools that, that work very well for them, as well as alternative educational environments or the, the proliferation of educational tools, I think just goes to show a lot of what the, the government schools and the private schools today that we've experienced are relying heavily on them in their own systems. So it's a foregone conclusion that technology is going to be involved in the education process. Uh, you're going to be getting your basics done, whether it's a Khan Academy type instruction or more you know, interactive ability. I mean, you know, COVID, I think, was was instrumental in a big part of that. My my kids still, when they can't quite make a music lesson, they do their music lesson remotely. And that, to me, is just shocking. Something as, as interpersonal as music, as physical as music. Uh, Zoom is a permanent replacement for a music teacher, but it can fill in the gaps when you're out of town for the week or you're otherwise indisposed. Yeah, so many different threads, and we're going to touch base on that, on the education, and dovetail that into kind of the current, and you touched on it earlier, the, the current financial situation that the country and the world finds itself in, that is uh, obviously ever-changing, but it's, it speaks to on the education side, and I find it quite, quite interesting, and I love your analogy of uh, music by Zoom. What? Wait a minute, how is somebody supposed to teach piano? How are somebody, how is somebody supposed to actually hear and interact and provide that interpersonal skills? And, and yes, you and I are uh, hundreds of miles apart from each other, still in the state of Texas, but hundreds of miles apart and having this StreamYard conversation as if we were in the same room. That's the elegance of technology. However, as you and I both, I think, share this, it does not, nor will it ever beat the opportunity for me to walk up to you, give you a big hug, shake your hand, look you in the eye and be able to either share a drink together, grab a beef, uh, grab some food together or have that interaction where we're literally in each other's presence and being able to experience the capability of humans being humans together. We had to change during COVID because everything globally was locked down. I think that's 
had its own significant impact, um, especially on the younger generation. When you have kids, and I've talked to a number of teachers about this, when kids at a tender young age are just learning their alphabet, it's not very effective to see a mouth move and what A, B, C, D, E, F is versus A, B, C, D, E, and F, and being able to actually understand the sounds and the pronunciation of that and the interactivity of being able to correct it versus when you're having something that's blocking your view and it's creating a new means with which you communicate. Completely and totally different. Had to be done in several different cases. There's a lot of debate that people can have 50 ways to Sunday about things that we did right and things that we did wrong, yet it happened. Now it's all about the ramifications long-term. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts. What do you believe over the course of, especially now not taking it 25 years, the last three years, what are some of the positive and some of the negative attributes of things that have changed with technology as it relates to the education of our youth that have happened, Joe? You know, I, I think the the diversity of, of options, right? I mean, the, the the time to be in the educational technology business has been the last three years. It has been the last twenty five years, but especially the last three years. And it's it's not just limited, I think, to to the, the children either. You know, we look at development, training, learning within the organizations that we're in very differently than we did years ago. In person training was the the worst possible way to spend your in office time for the last 25 years, the the one appointment on your calendar, you just never failed to dread. You know, I remember we sold voice over IP phone systems for years and years and years, and you'd have a big law firm that bought a thousand handsets and they're complicated. They're many computers and, and you'd schedule training with these attorneys and not one would show up. You'd have 50 empty seats. Maybe they would send their assistant, but you would guarantee that when that system went live, they would not let you forget that you didn't provide adequate training. You, know, you can take it on your terms now, right? If, and if you are the attorney billing 60 hours a week, but you've got 30 minutes on a Saturday morning to get that training done, you can do that. I think that applies to the, the, the children as well. I'm watching my, my children seek out educational opportunities, find them from new places, engage with these tools. Uh, however, you know, I think it's an incomplete experience without the face-to-face time. And so we, we send our kids to in-person school. We did it through much of COVID. We found schools that permitted that. We thought it was that important. And the impact, I think, has, has been significant. It's it's incumbent upon me as a parent, one role, but also as a, a leader in the business side. We're, we're training future leaders. We're training future professionals. We're training not just the content. We're not teaching just the content, but how to make best use of that content to improve your lives and the lives of those around you and the organizations that you inhabit. And that, that happens still mostly face-to-face. Yeah, as I say that, both of my companies still are uh, predominantly remote. We have a hybrid with, with GCS, which does a lot of, of talent development, of in-person learning and training. And there's a lot of collaborative benefits that gets. With TrustGrid, we've, we've really been remote from day one. It's a you know, pure software business, a managed software business, I should say. We have a services component as well. Uh, but we found those tools to, to make that work. But one of those tools is we still get together on a regular basis and, and share a drink or share a meal or you know the holiday party, the summer picnics, the times to get our families together, because we've got to learn that piece as well. We can't understate the importance of that interaction. Uh, ultimately, a, a single person company like what my father has, you know, has limitations placed on it that you just can't ever get past. And so I'm hoping that my children can learn to to lead, can learn to participate on teams, can learn to follow when appropriate, can can be part of a community. It certainly, is you know the the best parts of life I think as well. 
not just the most productive. Understood on so many different fronts there. And it's it's interesting from my side. And I'm going to bring in some specific technologies that uh, obviously are the topic of a number of different uh, conversations right now. TikTok, obviously extremely popular with youth. I know that a lot of our kiddos are leveraging it, using it. I also know that there's a lot of different conversations that are particular to folks that We've got folks at different governmental agencies and level all the way from the president to different companies that are literally having the conversation of this needs to be banned. We cannot use this. Obviously, there's the U.S. versus China piece associated with this. And many kids are like, yeah, I don't care of them or anybody seeing or capturing or having any data on me. What's the big deal? What's the issue? What's the problem? Yet I know that a, a, a decent percentage of our children are actually not only getting entertained, but getting their news relative to TikTok and other related platforms, which in its very own right, and we can have a different conversation about news as news versus news as media and entertainment, would be curious to get your take on this, Joe, both from a changing trends perspective. It used to be Facebook and then Snapchat and then TikTok and then various different means of social media that is the current, what people are using or how many platforms people are on. Twitter has been its own sporty ride over the last several years. Curious to get your take on the whole social media concept uh, of of goods and bads uh, with that. Yeah. You know, I share a lot of the concerns about TikTok, but really don't differentiate them much from a Twitter or a Facebook. I think a certain element of angry old man yelling at clouds, right? I, I can be on Twitter on my phone and, and don't think anything of it, but my daughter is on TikTok and I've got to go monitor that to see what she's up to. And obviously the Chinese government, the CCP are, are bad guys and we don't want them to have much influence over our children. And, and I read on Twitter, so take that for what it's worth, that the Chinese do not allow their children to consume the same content on TikTok that they allow our children to, which is interesting if true but you know i think it just begs a, 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 a the bigger question really is the impact of social media and i think it has a tremendously positive impact in the decentralization of information distribution you now can get something resembling the truth from a million different sources as opposed to a handful and i'm a big fan of that i think de- decentralization in that aspect is tremendously powerful and beneficial to all of us the downside of that is Boy, you've got to be able to think critically about the information you're receiving, analyze this information, decide when you don't know enough to make a decision. And those are skills that that we're not learning in school. Those are skills that we're not often taught. And I think they're absolutely essential for success in the next 50 years because the information overload is just getting started. And whether you ban TikTok, great, you know, something will replace it. The, the human need to consume information in this this fashion, I think, is overwhelming across all cultures and genders and nationalities. Everybody that, that gets access to this stuff consumes it like crazy. It's you know probably some addictive uh, element to it, but I um, I think that what we really want to focus on and what I work with my children on is is I uh, I want reasonable limits set to screen time. My life exists off of screens and face to face, as we talked about. But I, I think sheltering them from it completely is is wrong because they're going to get exposed to that sort of information, disinformation, misinformation, satire, comedy, you know, all, all these different concepts. And they've got to be able to make their own decisions based upon it. And, and so I'm, I'm not the overly protective parent that says, no, I don't prohibit much of that in the companies. You know, I think that there's tremendous learning value from a lot of the social media that goes on as well. And 
well, I know there's a, a trend now, no phones at work. If you're on your phone, you're, you're not working. I'm not so sure about that. It just depends on what you're doing. And you know, I think with, with sources like for me personally, Reddit and Twitter, when fine tuned to, to get the garbage out of the way, and it's the internet, there is tons of garbage in the way they can be tremendously educational and valuable resources. And I, I hope I can help other folks learn to do that as well. And especially my children. It's fascinating on several fronts, and it, it, it's it's interesting because no, I do not have TikToks. Or excuse me, TikTok. It's on my phone. Having said that, I do get them from business folks, friends, and especially my two daughters love to share with me different ones, and absolutely have seen and seen stuff that is highly entertaining, highly unusual, and, and it's interesting, and it's a good segue here because it really speaks to the leveraging of software and the how. It is extremely impactful. My daughters last night sent me, it was about a two minute long TikTok. And I cannot remember, I cannot remember the specific author of it that they shared it out, but it had been viewed several million times. And I was actually pleased in this case because it was one of those where I sent them back a note after I had watched it that said, that is the most insightful and informative thing that you guys have shared with me. And I don't know how long. And the reason why is it was a congressman who had gotten on and was explaining in very, very simplistic, plain Jane terms, the situation that happened relative to Silicon Valley Bank being taken over by the FDIC on Friday, what that meant and what it also means for short and long-term ramifications and what the government was doing about it. Not as a pitch for, hey, this is how cool government is, but it was literally a simplistic, straightforward, and valid information source, which again, for me saying TikTok and valid information source, that almost is, 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 is painful for me to say. But in this case, it absolutely was accurate. And the fact that both of my girls saw it, and they're like, Dad, this is the way that we should communicate. And I could do nothing else other than you're absolutely correct, because it's a good medium. The person was obviously well-versed. They were a member of Congress. They, they were younger, they grew up familiar with the technology and how it works, and they used literally, and I don't know if it was a minute and a half or two minutes, it wasn't very, very long, but it was long enough that he was able to explain in very good, but again, simplistic detail, a situation that a lot of people and a lot of smart people that I know are like, what exactly is going on and how does this impact me? Does this impact me? What's going to, what do I need to be doing right now? So in that case, it was an example of technology being leveraged to share information and a good explanation of information that was for the positive, which I loved versus some of the other stuff that's out there that you've referred to, the noise, the junk, the crap, the whatever that's literally out there that just causes me to shake my head and, and get frustrated more often than not. Your take on media, your take on social media or platforms as a means of building up versus taking down. Comments or thoughts on that, Joe? I've yet to participate on a platform that doesn't have the absolute worst of humanity and the absolute best of humanity. And I, it's, it's you know unbelievable, I think, to be exposed to that diversity of opinion. You know, I, I can't believe that these opinions all just started right with social media. This has always been part of the human condition that was never mentioned in, in polite company. You don't talk about politics or religion at dinner, right? And so most people have a level of engagement that leaves a lot of these 
unique opinions or unique uh, perspectives by the wayside where they many of them should have stayed. But where you take some of the the best of it, you know, Reddit, I think, is a fantastic example where I'm sure if you went looking, the subreddits you could find would disgust you in a million ways. However, the subreddits there that are educational in nature, that are informative in nature, that are collaborative with a community of people to learn and practice a skill. There's a woodworking subreddit that just fascinates me. There's a mechanic subreddit that fascinates me. Actually, I have to admit, the plumbing subreddit is pretty interesting for a guy that spends too much time with PVC and PEX piping on his ranch to really get a, a better understanding and to see people helping each other and collaborate, the ability to share you know, my, my fishing and hunting hobbies certainly are maximized by being able to share information and techniques and, and reviews on this stuff. So I'm, I'm overall a, a buyer on, on this. I'm an investor long-term. I think that this is going to be a net gain uh, for the education system, for all of us, for our children. It's just not a straight line there. It's a bumpy road. And, and if you're not careful, you can get down into some places there that, that aren't going to be beneficial to you individually. You know, as I said before, the, the ability to guide my children to the best parts. You can't hide the worst parts. You just got to help them make the right decision to avoid them meaningfully. You talked about screen time, and I know that's something that's so important. And uh, I know you're an iOS guy as well. And Apple does that wonderful thing on Sundays of reminding us of your screen time was up or down this week versus last week. Get the little notification. And I'm not sure if that's a sign of success or failure if mine is up or down, uh, depending upon the week that I've had. I just know that it exists and it's something that I 100% have, and I've passed it along to at least one of my daughters, the utterly not so positive fixation on the little red uh, uh, flashing icons uh, that signify that there's a waiting message or notification or something needs to be addressed with the different applications. One of the greatest and one of the perhaps worst based uh, 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 technology uh, adaptations or implementations, just because it drives behavior in so many different ways. And for me, I can 100% get caught up in the being caught up race. And there is no such thing as ever really being caught up because you talked about information overload and it's been there for some time. I mean, we're the, the technology has enabled humanity not only to uniquely and quickly create content and add it to the multiverse of information that's out there, but also more importantly, share it, which then means that everybody's got a trumpet or a megahorn, and that gets to the best, and in many cases, the worst of humanity. I personally am a bit not terrified. I'm not looking forward to 2024 being an election year, which everybody gets to then pull up their hackles and raise and put up their fences and say, it's my way versus the highway. And, and, and just the, the inevitable uh, headbutting that I just see happening again, as it happened a year ago, three years ago, et cetera. And I'm curious as we continue this conversation, and I love that you're buying in, you're investing in the overall goodness. I'm a glass half full or like to be a glass half full guy. You're buying in on this, and I, too, am buying in on the long-term ramifications of the positivity of technology. How do we keep the human side? This is humanizing software. How do we keep the productive, positive, humanizing side in software? How do we get there? 
It's an interesting question, especially Trust Grid. Right? We are infrastructure, infrastructure automation. It's, it's edge computing, it's cloud to edge networking, it's remote access management. There are very few users involved uh, in the software that we build. We mostly are automating infrastructure management tasks that were previously done by humans who dreaded them, despised these tasks. You've ever had to update 500 Cisco ASAs? It's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. By the time you get done, you start back over from scratch. And, and you know, what I look at and what we can deliver uh, through automation, through software, and, and I think I know, you know ChatGPT has come up a number of times in my conversations recently. You know, I, I don't look at chat GPT or even fundamental automation as displacing human jobs as much as it's enabling humans to do much better stuff and, and spend more time together. You know, we're, we're a long way from chat GPT replicating this experience here and even further away from replicating uh, a face-to-face meeting and, and the relationship building, the trust that's established. There really is the, the, the grease uh, through which all of this modern commerce and productivity exists, right? That's, you know, the, the, we build zero trust systems into software, but our daily experience is high trust relationships with people that we can count on that don't have to be micromanaged, that don't require excess resources to be monitored. And in the computer world, it's the exact opposite, right? You have to monitor everything because it's breaking down constantly. So I, I think it's it's a delicate balance into taking these lowest hanging fruit that are the easiest to automate. And I think that we're decades away from going really anywhere beyond that. And then enabling humans to do what humans can do to, to build relationships, to bond, to form trust, to conduct business and, and to create together in a, in a new world. And I, I don't think that there's zero impact from, from the software and the automation. I just don't think it's fundamentally different than it was when Andreessen said the software has eaten the world. It has eaten the world. That has already occurred, and we're just living in the next iteration of that. So multiple different topics here, uh, starting with, and not starting with, but actually winding up with uh, ChatGPT, because I know we wanted to spend some time on that. This concept of the mouse on the trap, just kind of running, running, going over and over and over again, and this concept of automation, this concept of repeatable tasks that, and you'd mentioned updating 500 Cisco ASA systems um, by the time you're done, rinse and repeat, and it's just a task that will never die. Tailwind exists, and I know TrustGrid TrustGrid exists for your specific edge computing solve solution. Y'all have done an excellent job with that. Tailwind exists to literally leverage software as a relationship. We've trademarked the phrase, we just do custom software development. It's zeros and ones, which in large part, isn't necessarily rocket science. It's putting zeros and ones together in a unique format in various different languages and frameworks and applications to make something happen. That's really not rocket science. The way that you do it from a quality basis, the way that you do it to be extensible, to be secure, the way that you do it to be listening to and being a part of the journey with the customer to you want to get X accomplished. And that can be applying for a car loan online. That can be transferring money. That can be setting yourself up for a haircut, which I do all the time. But various different services or uses or technologies that you want to leverage or pull on. And people are like, I want the easy button. I want to use my phone. I want to biometrically authenticate, or I don't even want to do that. I want to hit something. I want to click, click, and it's done. So it's the easy button. We have, and you said the world being eaten up by software, I'm not disputing that at all. We have made an implicit trade-off of 
I want the easy button and I'm prepared or at least okay with giving up privacy and safety and security because I want it to be easier. We've got stories now of ransomware where the folks creating the ransomware, especially with hospitals, taking it against cancer patients, as an example, which has just come out in the news recently. People aren't paying because it's happening so often. The hospitals, the banks, the institutions, the service organizations that are getting uh, afflicted by ransomware are saying, you know what? Go ahead. Knock yourself out. They've put themselves in a position from a privacy and safety and security perspective to not necessarily have the right traps put in place to prevent that from happening. And now that it has, they're saying, eh, whatever, I don't care. Would love to get your thoughts on the simplistic topic of the easy button versus safety, security, and privacy on the other side of the equation. What are your thoughts, Joe? My my mother's proudest moment was when the Atlantic a decade ago, wrote about ransomware for the first time, and they quoted me about a half a dozen times. So I, I know a thing or two about this. I've been in the ransomware game for a long time on the defense side. And, and you know, I, I think the easy button doesn't have to mean sacrificing privacy, security. It, it typically does. That's a matter of, of discipline. It's a professionalism. Uh, behind every big ransomware infection that you hear about in the news is somebody who didn't check their backups, is somebody who was told no for a budget request to expand the capacity of the backup system, to replicate it offsite. You know, these these are human decisions, uh, bad human decisions, much like you know, buying mortgage-backed securities at 1% with billions of dollars at Silicon Valley Bank that have negative ramifications. And it's you know one thing to point your finger at the ransomware perpetrators and they're bad guys and they they deserve ill will heaped upon them. I personally think that if you're a software developer and you're making twelve thousand dollars a year in Eastern Europe, that there's going to be no lack of incentive for you to try to make five times your annual income from somebody around the world who you don't know. Right? That's just an economic situation that we're not going to work our way around. And, and historically, we haven't worked our way around that. It's, it's a piracy. It's a form of piracy. Poor people attack rich people because they can. What fixes piracy is navies. What fixes ransomware and these epidemics of sacrificing you know, security, reliability, privacy is, is navies of a modern sort, right? And this is just taking care of your own internal security practices, prioritizing this at the board level, and, and a cultural change, you know, as, as much as my daughter doesn't value her privacy on TikTok very much. She doesn't believe there's anything worth seeing that the Chinese government can know everything about her and do with it what they will. I can't really argue with that because she's not a secret agent. She has no proprietary data or systems. She has no classified status. She can't to the best it. of your knowledge. To the best of my knowledge. That's right. You know, and, and so I, I think there's there's some just cultural evolution that we have to go through as as Americans, as Westerners, as as humans to understand what these trade-offs are and to start making better decisions in our families, in our personal life, and in our organizations and corporations, nonprofits about how we emphasize privacy and security, especially. And I think once that comes around, these problems are usually going to be those problems of those people who don't do that, who don't take steps to preserve their privacy and their security. And so, yeah, I put a lot of responsibility back on these individuals in leadership positions who, who keep making bad decisions about this. And that certainly you know, applies even to the, the big tech companies, right? You, you, you need to point your finger at the Googles and at the, to a lesser extent, but in the same category, the Apples and the Microsofts 
who are productizing the information, who are abusing privacy of individuals for, for profit, Facebook and social media and you know, all, all the big names there. But that doesn't stop until we decide to stop it. That doesn't stop until we change individual behaviors and make better decisions with prioritizing that as, as part of a purchase. And, and in some cases, the start of purchasing, of not of refusing to be the product that they're selling. So we get to this age old conversation of how do we facilitate change? Well, you facilitate change. You literally make the decision once a pain point has been achieved. And if we've got Eastern Europeans that are making well below market range, they're going to be incentivized to take whatever steps that they need to, to become richer and to become wealthy because they don't have any understanding of what potential ramifications their actions are. They're like, whatever, I'm just going to share this information, this private information. I don't care what it means because it's all about me. It's all about what I want to actually accomplish. And I'm just getting rich based off of whatever reasons. And it's that sense of selfishness. It's that sense of I need, I want, I must have that I think is driving a lot of behaviors and not necessarily in a positive way. Having just said that, I think that when we have the opportunity to explore new technologies and we've got this concept of open GPT that is viewed both as a threat and an opportunity. I've seen it. I've leveraged it. And I've leveraged it. I've seen it. I've, I've watched it. I've heard numerous and read numerous articles relative to it. Probably one of the best ones, and I think I brought it up on last week's podcast, is a conversation with a number of credit union CEOs where they were demonstrating the various powers because a lot of people hadn't seen it in action yet. And the conversation was literally typing in, write me a breakup letter for my girlfriend. And and you just saw it scrolling across the screen. And it was one of those where you're going, huh, that's actually not necessarily a bad letter. That could have saved me a lot of time in my younger days. <laughs> a lot of time, but that's a separate conversation for that. <laughs> but it comes back to the point. We've got OpenAI that's driving ChatGPT. We've got Google with Bard. We've got China with Baidu. Other folks are getting into the game. Snap announced a couple of weeks ago that, yeah, we're going to give an AI component of Snap. And by the way, we have no idea what it's going to do. So enjoy and use at your own risk type of stuff. So they're jumping in the water. They don't even know how deep it is. And they're just going for it. Yet we still need to keep the people in technology. My last question for you, Joe, our title today is humanizing software, but our subtitle is people-driven tech. When you hear those three words, people-driven tech, what comes to mind? You know, I, th I think immediately towards the development team at TrustGrid, senior level guys, amazing team, of finest development team I've ever worked with, led by my co-founder, Stephen Stites. About 25% of the code we're writing on some builds is, is AI driven at this point in time. I put that in, in quotes because there's not a lot of artificial or intelligence around it. It's automating the mundane, you know, much like we do at a bigger level at, at TrustGrid, much like the entire software industry exists to do. Nobody likes doing that kind of work, right? Writing the same interfaces to a SQL database or to insert your technology of choice here, it's it's not beneficial. It's, it's, if you get paid by the hour, well, that's some way to, to, to pay your bills, but that's about the only upside to it. It's all been written before. It's all been done before. Nothing novel or creative is being applied here. So why not automate that piece and let people work on what they actually are good at, which is the creativity piece, which I've yet to see outside of recasting certain pictures into different pictures, which I'm not sure is creativity either. 
you know, artificial intelligence is, is pretty dumb. You know, driving a car for a human ain't that hard, but they can't do it yet. I think we're a long ways off from that displacing human jobs. And what we're seeing is just the, the next iteration of technology taking away a lot of the worst parts of the, the digital work that we do and allowing us to, to focus on the pieces that it won't be competitive with probably for our lifetime. So that whole component, what I hear you saying is we're making progress. However, the artificial is more relevant than the intelligence side of artificial intelligence at this point, And it's still got a long road to hope. Yeah, I, I look at it as more marketing fluff than anything at this stage. I still don't see the general AI is, I, I have no idea. It's so far down the road, we can't even see it. So what they're doing is just automating stuff the way they have been before. It's a little bit more innovative than it has been. It's the next evolution. But I, I hesitate to embrace this revolutionary mindset that some people are bringing with this. It's a cool chatbot. Uh, that's a, and, you know, breakup letters are important. And, and, and automating this, this code that we have to write again and again and again in organizations all over the country that's you know the exact same code more or less each time, that's beneficial. That certainly is nice. It's, you know, but ultimately, what's the impact going to be? I think we're probably overblowing that impact tremendously. And that you know, if, if people can get 10% more time out of their week to do more creative, meaningful work, that's, that's a big deal. And we should focus on that being a big deal, not that Skynet's going to come blow us up here anytime soon. So what I'm essentially taking away from that is despite the fact that Austin drivers have significant issues, and it's not just Austin drivers, I know, there is no immediate answer to the solution of how in the world can we keep people focused behind the wheel? I know I'm guilty as charged with yeah. keeping people not being crazy drivers. Okay, I got it. Well, that's the people-driven tech side of it. And Joe, as we wrap up today, I want to thank you. I could easily go on and on and on because I've got about 30 different other topics that I'd love to cover with you, but want to be respectful of yours and our listeners' uh, time, both those now and in the future. Thank you for joining us, Joe. Uh, your insight, your experience, your wisdom, very, very valuable. And I'm blessed to have you not only on today, but consider you a dear friend. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Andrew. You're a good friend of mine too. So we'll see you again soon. Absolutely. And as we wrap up today, we invite everyone again, join us online, visit our website at tailwindsw.com, view our previous episodes and listen in and engage in the conversation. When we're all talking, we're all solving things together. So as we close out today's humanizing software episode, we want to wish everybody a hearty and blessed thank you and have a great week. And most importantly, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.